I'm Bishop Sherman Young. Each week, the Word Break podcast answers questions about God, faith, and other spiritual issues. Here is this week's message. 3 and 7 are very important. As a matter of fact, here we are now in the 7th millennium, we believe, since Adam. The Bible doesn't tell us very much about prehistoric times. But those who are smarter than I say that there were 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham, 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus, and 2,000 from Jesus to us, making the 21st century the early morning of the seventh millennium since Adam. The Bible says that a 1,000 of our years, or a millennium with us, is as one day with God. And so here we are in the seventh day of God since the creation. It's also interesting that the seventh day of God is the third day of grace because the cross some 2,000 years ago, and we're here in the 21st century, in the first century of a new millennium or the third millennium since the cross. Seven times three is how much? 21, the 21st century, a time of maturity in the body of Christ when God is doing great and tremendous things because of our faith. I want to read some scripture tonight from Ezra in the Old Testament, the book of Ezra. And I need a little room tonight because I recognize that this is a bit technical. It's not scripture that you hear read often. But I want to read an excerpt from Ezra chapter 3, the book of Ezra. Chapter 3, and I ask if you would address your attention to the very first verse and a few following. The Old Testament book of Ezra 3 and 1, And when the seventh month had come, the children of Israel were in the cities, and the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar. Would you say built the altar? Would you say it again? And built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its basis, and they offered burnt offerings unto the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings, and in the number required by ordinance of each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offerings, and those for new moons, and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. Verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Verse 7, they also gave money to the masons and carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre of, to bring cedar logs uh, bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the permission 
which they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. Would you look back up in the passage at verse number two? It says, then Joshua, the son of Josedek, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar. Again, would you say, built the altar? Yes, built the altar of God to Israel. Now, if you would go down again to verse number six. From the first day of the month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. I want to tag this text, resetting the altar. Can you say that with me, please? Resetting the altar. The name Ezra means help. It could very well mean the help of God, or God is my help, or God is our help. It's an interesting period in the history of the nation of Israel. Because Ezra is known for leading a group of Israelites back to the homeland after they'd been in exile for many years. Students of the Bible will remember that Babylon had conquered Israel. and King Nebuchadnezzar had come in and not only captured the army and the people there, but he destroyed the city of Jerusalem. He's the only king in the history of the world to destroy Jerusalem. He burned the walls, tore down the buildings and businesses, and he destroyed the temple of God. And so Nebuchadnezzar, upon destroying the temple of God, took the holy vessels from the temple, the golden cups and tables and, and everything that they used in the worship of God, and took them back to Babylon with him. And so that Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem and takes everything back to Babylon. You remember in the book of Genesis, after the flood, God promised that he would never again flood the world. But there was a group of people at Babel. The word Babel means to rebel. It's also believed that's in that same general geography where there was the Garden of Eden. So the people at Babel rebelled against God. And they built a tower trying to reach heaven. And they said, just in case God doesn't keep the promise about the flood, we will erect a tower and we will escape to heaven where he is. And we don't have to worry about drowning. They were rebelling against God. So Babel means rebel, and the people of Babel rebelled against God. That same place in the Old Testament is now known as Babylon. Babylon is Babel, or to rebel. And Nebuchadnezzar is the only king in history to overthrow Jerusalem and tear down the temple of the living God. In our day and time, that piece of geography is called Iraq. And our president just brought troops home from that place that still to this day rebels against the whole world. And under Saddam Hussein and other leaders, down through the years and the centuries, rebellion has come from that land. And so when you read this tonight, understand that what happened was Babylon came in with Nebuchadnezzar and took the saints of God tore down the holy city, destroyed the temple of God. And yet in their pride, the Bible says in the book of Daniel, 
that one night at a party, a hand came writing on the wall. They were using those very cups that they took from the temple before they destroyed it. They were drinking wine in those cups. And the Bible says, while they were using dedicated things to God, while they were using the holy things of Jehovah, a hand appeared writing on the wall letting them know that their time as a kingdom had officially ended. The writing declared that that night the kingdom would be destroyed and a new king would come and take over that part of the world. And that night, somebody say that night, it was instantaneous judgment that night. No time to pray. That night they died. No time to repent. That night they died. No time to seek the face of God. That night they died. And a new king came to town. The king of the Medes and Persians. And the first thing that he did was say to all the subject people, no matter where they were from, if you want to go back to your homeland, you can go. And so three groups left for Israel. The first was led by Zerubbabel. 20 years after Jerusalem had been destroyed. Then 50 years later, 70 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, you see the second group led by Ezra. And then 90 years after the destruction and 10 years after Ezra, you see the third group led by Nehemiah. Now Zerubbabel is going to lead in rebuilding the temple. Ezra is going to lead in rebuilding the morale of the people. And getting their faith back in place. And then Nehemiah will come and build or rebuild the walls surrounding Jerusalem. So that the saints can be safe. Now it's important before I go any further to understand that Zerubbabel was not a preacher. Zerubbabel was not a priest. Rather he was the governor. He was a community leader. He was an official but God anointed him to lead 43,000 people back to Israel in order that the temple could be restored. If you take a world map and spread it out and point to the center of it, you will see that Israel is almost in the center of the earth. Jerusalem is in the center of Israel. And the temple had been erected in the center of Jerusalem. So it is as if to say that the headquarters for God is in the center of the world. And the world can't be right when the headquarters of God is torn down. That the temple represented the dwelling place of God. Where you have the inner court, the outer court, the holy of holies with the ark of the covenant behind the veil where only the high priest could walk. And that symbolized the presence of the living God. So Zerubbabel, not a preacher, but a leader, is going to go back and he's leading people in order to get this right. Because even the governor must be of right faith. I know there's a lot going on right now in this election process, but I believe there's a theological part to it that most of us don't want to understand. Sure, you've got uh, one candidate's black, the other one's white, I see that. You've got one's a Republican and the other one's a Democrat, I see that. But one of the candidates is not of right faith. 
And when you talk about choosing a leader, I'm not trying to tell you who to vote for, but I do want to let you know a couple of things. Whoever sits in the seat of authority needs to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know what he can do about jobs. I don't know what he can do about the economy. But I do know except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain that build it. I do know that if he doesn't have the right connection, I wish I had a witness. Because the church of Jesus Christ is not of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has no saints in it. It is a cult. It is based upon the teachings, not of the New Testament, but the Book of Mormon. I wish I had a witness. What Joseph Smith claimed in the early 1800s, he read so much scripture and he was so upset about it. And God gave him a vision, told him all churches were an abomination. Then came back in a second vision, visited, he said, by John the Baptist in 1828, saying that he was to go out and dig up some tables of stone that were written in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, which is something that doesn't even exist. Never produced the tables of stone for anybody else to see, but he claimed that he translated that into the Book of Mormon. And went on to suggest that Jesus, after his resurrection, ascended up into the sky, flew over the ocean, and landed somewhere around Mexico. And staying around Mexico, spread it that same gospel message. I wish I had a witness. Anytime you see any religion that's got to have its own book, its own testament, its own historical record, you ought to know something's wrong with that. I said there ain't but one book, and it's about one Savior. I said there ain't but one book. The Old Testament is about him. The New Testament is about him. I said it ain't but one book. If you want to give me a third book or a second book and a third testament, I know something's wrong somewhere. No, I don't want a Mormon that believes that black people are cursed. And the only way you can be right, they have to take you in a room and pray with you. And God will whiten your insides while you're still black on the outside like you're a two-legged Oreo. No, I don't want a man that believes that, that God puts secret underwear on him when he gets around non-Mormons so he won't get contaminated. No, I don't want that. You could loosen up and help me a little bit. Because the truth of the matter is that Zerubbabel is a man of God. And God does have something to say about who leads nations. He does have something to say about who leads states. He does have something to say about who leads your church. Sometimes you hear people say, now pastor, we got you here. I was here when you got here. I'll be here when you go. But the truth is all your church did was extend an invitation to a man of God to become your pastor. But God had to send him. God is interested in who provides leadership. You know why? Because if the temple gets rebuilt, it's going to be done through leadership. If the wall gets rebuilt, it's going to be done through leadership. Nothing works without leadership. 
Every room you walk into in your life, somebody in that room is in charge if there are people in there. When you go to Walmart and you want to return something and they act like they don't want to take it, what do you say? Where's the manager? And when you ask for a manager, a whole group of people don't show up so they can vote on whether you're going to get to return it or not. Every classroom, there's one in charge. Every office, there's one in charge. When you walk in the police station, there's one in charge. When you walk in the church, there's one in charge. Because leadership makes the difference because the leader has the vision. The vision and the visionary are one and the same. Sometimes the church will say, well, we want to tell you, Reverend, about our vision. No, churches don't have visions. Churches participate in the vision. But the vision is inside of the visionary. And if you lose that visionary and get another one, you've got to get ready for a new vision. So when Zerubbabel gets back to town, he's ready to work. I wish I had some help. I said leadership is important. And we have to understand our role in redefining the church, redesigning the church, realigning the church, reforming the church, because leadership is important. And God places the resources in the hands of Zerubbabel. He comes in with a vision. He comes in with money and building materials. He is going to rebuild the temple. But something is interesting to me, and I'm going to hurry up this up. Something is interesting to me. He is back in Israel for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. But he doesn't appoint a building committee. He doesn't start raising money for the building program. According to what we read tonight, the first thing he wants to restore is the altar. Now, now the temple, the house, the house of God needs to be restored. But his mind is not on building the house first. The first thing that has to be done is he has to restore the altar. Now, you, you cannot have a temple without an altar. But you can have an altar without a temple. Because the altar represents something about God and our divine connection with God. And you got to be careful personally, individually, that you keep your personal altar on fire. Don't let your altar become a tombstone. Don't let your altar become a place where God used to bless, where you used to fellowship with God. You used to feel the anointing. You used to celebrate in the worship. But over the years, your fire has gone out. You've got to make sure that the altar is in the right place because it's the place of spiritual infusion. When the worship is right, everything else will be right. Good worship produces good health and good wealth. I wish I had a witness. I say good worship produces prosperity. If you want to prosper as a believer, always be present for the worship service because good worship is going to release good health in the atmosphere. You don't have to have anybody lay hands on you. You can get healed in the worship. 
Your migraine can go away in the worship. Your arthritis can stop hurting you in the worship. Your spirit can be lifted in the worship. The worship is a place of deliverance. Oh, when you go to worship, we're not just gathering together just for the sake of getting together. We're at that spiritual altar where there is a connection that cannot be denied. Let me give you two or three things about the altar and I'm gone. First thing is the altar is the place of worship. Can you say that back to me? The altar is the place of worship. The altar represents communing with God. That what Zerubbabel knows is that if we're going to rebuild this city, it's going to start with a divine connection. The individuals, the people have to get connected to God. The families have to get connected to God. Whatever we set up and organize for builders, the masons, the, 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 the carpenters, whatever we do, all of us need that relationship with God. It's about communing with God. And you commune with God through prayer. You talk to God and God talks to you. Prayer is not a monologue, it's a dialogue. It's not where I do all the talking. It's where I do some listening. It's where I tune in with God. That's why Jesus said when you pray, you need to find a secret closet. You need to find a private place because you're going to be saying some stuff that nobody needs to hear you say. If you're really going to pray right, you're going to confess some things that you don't need to get out. You're going to talk to God about you in ways you don't even talk to your best friend about you. You're going to go in that secret closet and you're going to undress before God. You're going to take off all the pretense, all the falsehood. You're going to get real with God. I wish I had a witness. We got to learn how to get real with God. Sometimes, I don't mean any harm now, but sometimes I hear people praying and they pray in Elizabethan English. Lord, we thank thee for this day and thy loving kindness. You don't talk like that. What makes you think God talks like that? God is not a King James Version God. God is right where you are. He knows where you live. He rides in your car. He's there when you're talking on your cell phone. He reads your text messages. God is with you right now. I left him in Atlanta coming to Alabama and he rode with me to Alabama. When I got to Alabama, he met me over here. He met me at the hotel and when Dr. Swift picked me up, I left him at the hotel and he rode in the car with us to Elizabeth. When I got to Elizabeth, he rode in the car with me, but I met him as soon as I got on the grounds. And he's still back at the hotel and back in Atlanta. He knows every move I make. He gives me eyesight and hearing. Every time I breathe one breath out, he shoves another one down my throat. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. And you got to learn how to get real with God. You're missing your blessing because you're pulling that Halloween stuff with God. You go before the altar with your mask and your costume on. Pretending to be something that you're really not. Oh, I don't have enough help to talk about this. I know we think we can fool God, but you can't. He knows what's in your heart. 
He knows what you thought and did not say. He knows what you whispered beneath your breath. He knows how you really feel about the people you work with and some of the folk you live in with. Oh, I'm not going to get any help up in here. I say it's time to get real. You need to tell him about the real you. You need to tell him what you're struggling with. You need to tell him about the battles you lost. The times that you tried to be holy and you couldn't find holiness. The times that you tried to be honest but integrity ran out of the room. You need to tell him that you struggle with your health. You struggle with your faith. You struggle with your sexuality. You struggle with things in your life day after day after day after night after night after day. Week after week you need to get real. But not only, not only is it the place of prayer, it's the place of praise. Now, you know what the Bible says? That we are to praise the Lord. Now, I don't know why we spend so much time in church trying to be quiet. Because when you read the book of Psalms, the last thing that the people were who invented praise and worship was quiet. Listen at them. Praise the Lord on the symbols. Praise him on the timbrels. Praise him on the heart. Did you read what they say? Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And then they say dance before the Lord. Then they say shout before the Lord. I don't know why we think that going to church is about maintaining our composure. The Holy Ghost is fire. And I've never seen anybody quiet when there's a fire in the house. Praise means you open your mouth. Praise means that you say something about God to somebody else. We don't pray. Praise doesn't go up to God. Praise goes out to others. Worship goes up to God. Isaiah said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And I saw the angels, the cherubs there, and I heard them crying out to one another, he's holy, 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 holy. They're not talking to God. They're talking to one another. And when you praise the Lord, when you're in a praise service, we ain't talking to God. We're telling one another he's good. All the time. He's my healer. All the time. He's my deliverance. All the time. He's my strength. All the time. He's my way maker. All the time. He's wonderful. All the time. I know what some people say, you know, I, I, I'm just not emotional. I don't get into that. I'm not. Well, you may not be emotional, but you may be disobedient. Because you're not commanded to praise God out of emotion. You're supposed to praise God because he is God. And because if it wasn't for the Lord, tell me, what would I do? When I was pastoring First Baptist Church, Jacksonville, a lady came up to me, wonderful lady, wonderful worker in the church. She was retired from the school system. She said, Reverend, I want to talk to you. Said, you're a nice young man. Said, uh, and uh, I appreciate 
the things you're doing here in this community. She said, but Reverend, you know, you, you preach some of, the, some of the best sermons I ever heard, but when you get to the end and you do that hollering, I can't figure out what you're saying. I said, well, sister, I said, and you know, this is back when I had more guts than I had sense. I said, sister, I said two things about that. Number one, when I preach, I'm not going to holler until I'm through preaching. So you don't have to try to figure out what I'm saying. I ain't saying nothing. I've delivered the message and now I'm celebrating. I said, but number two, when I holler, that's really announcing to the church is hollering time. So you're not supposed to be trying to figure out what I'm saying. You're supposed to be hollering too. I come to the altar for prayer and I come to the altar for praise. But then the altar also represents sacrifice. Can anybody say sacrifice? See, when you get to the altar, you're supposed to sacrifice yourself. In the Old Testament, we read it tonight, they brought different animals. They brought bulls, they brought pigeons, but we're supposed to bring ourselves. When we get to the altar, we're supposed to sacrifice our pride. I serve in the Lord's house because God is good to me. I don't serve in the Lord's house for the praise of other people. I don't serve in the Lord's house so they can announce what I've done. I serve because my life is on the altar. And whatever the Lord needs, he has it. I wish I had some help. It's the place of sacrifice where pride has to be destroyed. That whatever I can do in God's house, I need to do it willingly and lovingly and cheerfully. Because it's the place of sacrifice. And because it is a sacrifice... It is called an offering. That what I do in the name of Jesus, I am offering that to God. I don't want to offer God the least bit of time that I have. I don't want to offer to God uh, the, 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 the least bit of understanding of protocol that I have. I, I want to I offer excellence to God. I want to always look my best. I want to always do my best because of the goodness of God in my life. And then that offering includes the offering. Because when you read, it says, later on towards the end of what I read, it said, and they also, verse 7, gave money. He knew that the Lord could not bless Israel until Israel started investing in their own future. So it's the place of offering because I can't get my celebration on right without my offering. <laughs> I, 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 I can't be the best that I can be without my offering. And God has always said, when you come, bring something with you. Oh my God, I wish I had a witness. There was a man named Adam and Eve had two sons named Cain and Abel. Both of them worshiped with offerings. Cain brought what he had. Abel brought what he had. Abel brought livestock. Cain brought vegetables. Who told them to do that? They had no Sunday school teacher back then. 
They had no pastor back then. They had no priest back then. They had no sanctuary back then. How did they know that you couldn't worship God without bringing something to him? Oh, when you come to the altar, bring something with you. And God told Israel at one point, he didn't like what they was bringing. He said, don't you bring me a sick offering. I want your best. You know, they were bringing the lambs with the broken legs and tetters and the goats, you know, that uh, the tail had been chopped off in an accident. God said, don't bring that to me. Bring me your best. Somebody said, bring your best. Bring me your best. So I don't want your sick offerings. God is saying that today in church. So God said, I don't want your sick offering. You said, what's a sick offering? A sick offering is when, when your had do costs more than what you put in an offering envelope on Sunday. A sick offering is when your manicure and your pedicure costs you more than what you put in the house of God. A sick offering is when you reach in a $300 pocketbook and take out a $2 offering and sing, oh, how I love Jesus. A sick offering is when you live in a $200,000 house and you ride in a $30,000 car and you put on $500 worth of clothes and shoes and come to the house of God on Sunday morning and put $5 in the offering. God said, when you come to the altar, bring your best. That's why I don't have a problem doing the word of the Lord. When I read in the Bible that the tithe was the Lord's, I heard up and got it out of my pocket. Because I want to do God's will. I want to do God's word. And when I come to the altar, I want to bring my best. So it represents sacrifice. It represents worship. And then it represents something that was very peculiar to me. Defense from your enemies. It's right here in the text. Chapter 3, verse 2, the end of verse 2, said they arose and built the altar of God, of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as written in the law of Moses. Verse 3, although fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they were afraid. They traveled through open country with wagon trains and camels loaded with fine things. They were afraid. But there's something about worship that gives you boldness. There's something about the altar and worship and prayer and praise that builds up that inner person. So much to the point, the Bible said, when a man's ways pleases God, even his enemies, I wish I had a Bible reader, even his enemies will be at peace with him. That they use the altar to help them with their defense. 
Oh, because when, 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 when your worship is right, you'll have strength in your soul and strength in your spirit. Come on, son, I'm ready to come in now. When your worship is right, you'll have power in your soul. I heard Paul, I heard Paul, I heard Paul say, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. I heard him say, put on the helmet of salvation. You know, I'm trying to finish this. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. Said, put on the helmet of salvation. Yeah, and the breastplate of righteousness. And the girdle of truth. And the shoes of the spirit. Put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. Having the shield of faith. And uh, the sword of the spirit. Which is the word of God. He said, uh, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having done all to stand, having been dressed at worship, he said, stand, stand therefore with the whole armor of God. So they had the altar put back in place. And they had their worship put back in place. They had, they had the place of sacrifice put back in place. Before they could build a temple, they had to get back to God. And you know, no matter what you're going through, you need to maintain your connection with God. Because when you maintain that connection, he's going to make impossibilities possible for you. You know, when I was thinking about this worship, my mind ran back when I was a little boy. And my father was born in 1895. He was a self-taught man and an untrained man. And there were a lot of words he just couldn't pronounce. You know, he believed in reading and he believed in education. But there were just certain words he couldn't pronounce. And sometimes we'd be at Baptist home and my dad would get up in the pulpit and he said, come on church, let's wish him up. He said, come on church, let's wish him up. And you know, I knew he was trying to say, let's worship the Lord. But worship was one of those words he didn't know how to say. So he said, come on church, Let's wish him up. That's what I want to say to you tonight. Come on. Let's wish him up. You know, the songwriter said, How to reach the masses, men of every birth. For an answer, Jesus, he gave a key. He said, and I 
fire if I be lifted up from the earth I'll draw I said I'll draw I said I'll draw unto me has he been good to you well let's wish him up has he delivered you well let's wish him up has he healed you let's wish him up did he make a way out of no way for you let's wish him up he's worthy yes he's worthy yes his word does anybody know he's worthy does anybody know he's worthy won't he provide won't he protect you won't he keep you won't he deliver you say yes I'm looking for a witness. I'm looking for a witness. I'm looking for a witness. Won't he deliver you? Say yeah! Yeah! Say yeah! through trials and tribulation That's what Sister Grill was talking about. She said she didn't understand the hollering. I told her when I holler, you supposed to be hollering too. Is there anybody here knows he'll take care of you? Oh! Hey! Hey! I keep my altar on fire. I keep my altar on fire. I don't have to be at Elizabeth. I can worship in my car. I can worship in my living room. I can worship in the break room. I can worship in line at the poles. I can worship wherever I am. Oh. 